Welcome everybody, Andrew Holacek here, and um, I can't tell you how excited I am to spend this next hour or so with one of the really preeminent voices of wisdom in the Western world um, today, and I, I think you'll understand that this is not an exaggeration uh, as I introduce you to um, this amazing individual, Lama Suryadar. So as usual, I will uh, recite a formal int uh, brief introduction of this remarkable individual, and then we're going to jump into some really rich conversations. So Lama Surya Das, um, by the way, I believe this is translated as Servant of the Sun. I mean, what a beautiful name. Um, Lama Surya Das is one of the foremost Western Buddhist meditation teachers and scholars. The Dalai Lama affectionately calls him the American Lama. Lama Surya has spent over 45 years studying Zen, Vipassana, Yoga, and Tibetan Buddhism with many of the great masters of Asia, including some of the Dalai Lama's own teachers. He is an authorized Lama in the Tibetan um, Buddhist order, a leading spokesperson for Buddhism and contemporary spirituality, a translator, a poet, meditation master, chant master, and spiritual, social spiritual activist, and all around really good guy. And so he's also the author a little bit um, running here with it. He's the author of some um, 13, 14 books, I believe, um, which have been translated into many languages and have had an enormous impact on the landscape of spirituality in, um, in the West um, and also obviously Buddhism in the West. And so thank you, my dear friend, for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to chat with us. I, I'm really looking forward to talking about a few things with you. Thank you. And same here. Uh, I just published my 16th book from Sounds True. It's a children's book called The Yeti and the Jolly Lama. So partly I'm mentioning that because I think we need a little more jollyness in our serious dharma and spiritual community. What do you think? I, I couldn't agree more. You know, it, it's one of the near enemies. It's, it's, it's not gaiety. Yeah, it's exactly. It's one of the near enemies, you know, the kind of the right. the self-seriousness and the solemnity of spirituality. I, I think yes. um, people need to spend more time with people like His Holiness the Dalai Lama or Mingjia Rinpoche, who are just constant jokers and, and the life's full of humor. And, you know, to me, um, sorry, it's a play on the inner rendering of the word enlightenment, you know, people who... Yes. Who are lighter in spirit and in heart and, and act with childlike uh, wonder and delight at, at, at the phenomenal world. So before we get into some very specific questions, I always start with my guests by um, asking them, because of course what we're doing here, um, Surya, is we're using in this particular uh, nightclub venue, we're fundamentally using dreams um, as a way to explore the nature of mind and reality. And, and in so doing, we explore the, the deeper implications of lucidity, talking about lucidity um, principle altogether, how it ties into uh, awareness. Um, and so there's a the vast array of things will be very easily uh, segued into. But I want to start by providing you a platform to talk to us a little bit about the role of dreams and dream yoga in your life, because you, in addition to your books, you you issued with Sounds True a wonderful uh, CD set on dream yoga, and there aren't too many scholar practitioners that do that. Um, and so, share with us the the place of dreams, and then in particular the place of lucid dreaming and dream yoga in your own psycho spiritual development. Well, 
Sure. And Andrew, I have a great deal of uh, respect and appreciation and love even for your work in this field. So thank you. It's very important. Well, it's very kind of you, my friend. Thank you. And the other people that are working in it and publishing in it and, you know, evolving the thinking and practices there, Stephen Labarge and others. Um, it's a very important practice to me that I've had some, let's say, uh, affinity for, if not success, over the decades. Um, starting with my in my three year retreat and dark three nine day dark retreat and other things. I'm just mentioning these in passing for those that are familiar with this as a Tibetan Buddhist practice, not just as the lucid dreaming, uh, more simple secular forms. But it's a way of awakening to the dreamlike nature of reality in the daydream or the bardo between birth and death, which is another bardo, not just the bardo from death to rebirth or other kinds of bardo or transition passageways in between states. But it's actually a way of awakening within the dream, the daydream also, and recognizing the contingency or intangibility and uh, subjectivity or, you know, dreamlike nature of, quote, reality, unquote. And I put quotes around that because reality isn't my, our favorite word in Buddhism. But yeah. Talking in English, you know, awakening from the daydream of illusion, delusion, greed and anger to the clarity and transparency and unselfish, uh, selfless joy of being. Beautiful. And that's the importance of lucid dreaming and Tibetan dream yoga. So I put out one of the things that I published from Sounds True in the 90s. It's called Tibetan Dream Yoga, and there's an enhanced DVD, and it's probably streamable now. And I think it's a very important practice. It's doable in a secular as well as in its traditional uh, Tibetan Buddhist Vajrayana or Diamond Path approach, Tibetan Dream Yoga. And I think it's very important for us to remember. The a Buddhist saying from the Mahayana Sutras, which a lot of, of course, Vajrayana Buddhism, Tibetan, so-called Tibetan Buddhism, Himalayan Buddhism is based on, Tantrayana, Vajrayana, and so on. Yep. Sangak, what's it called? The secret mantra Vajrayana. Sangak, yep. to be technical. We're going to talk about the Yanas, which people can get totally attached and involved in. Um, it's very important to remember, and I have often said this, and I like to teach my students these kind of, quote, American mantras, like from the Mahayana Sutras, I think it's the Diamond Sutra, Prajnaparamita Sutra, Wisdom Sutra, anyway, like a dream, like a fantasy, like a mirage. And that's one of the eight similes of illusion. And Buddhism, since early times, and early Buddhism, the root vehicle, early Buddhism, the sutra vehicle and so on, the polytext, has talked about reality as like a dream and like an illusion, not as a dream, as an illusion, as the Hindus say. And that's one distinction between Hinduism and Buddhism that could well be understood by those of us who are interested in these uh, finer points. We're in getting on with refining our spiritual understanding with lojung, spiritual refinement, mind training, attitude transformation, lojung. And see things as like a dream, like an illusion, like a mirage, like echoes, like bubbles going by on a fast-moving stream, and recognize their transparency, their contingency, their impermanence, and 
uh, non-separateness or selfless nature and so on. So I think this is a great access point or portal, to use a more modern word, into mm -hmm. so-called higher states of consciousness or into transcendental wisdom awareness or the natural state, as we call it, in the non-dual awareness teachings of Vajrayana, Mahamudra, and Dzogchen, the great perfection, the ultimate perspective, Mahamudra and Dzogchen, that things are not what they seem to be. Things are not what they seem to be, and it's like a dream, like illusion. Now, of course, the like is very important to us to understand, just like if your children are having a nightmare, you might well try to wake them up. If they're screaming and shouting and tearing at their bedclothes and sweating, tiger, tiger, or something like that, or fire, tormented in their nightmare, you try to wake them up. But if you can't wake them up, you don't go and get the fire hose. You don't try to get the uh, weapon to catch or, you know, <clears throat> push back the tiger. You know they're going to wake up in the morning because there's no fire, no tiger. It's just a dream. Yes. So in that way, we go through life like a dream and still taking seriously the positive and negative, which may be subjective, the wholesome and unwholesome to talk Buddhist, the helpful and unhelpful, what's real and what's unreal. You know, there's genuine, uh, what do you call it, clear cognition, and then there's hallucinations and other unreal perceptions and so on, and discerning and discriminating these distinctions are very, very important to the awakening being, to the bodhisattva, to the practitioner, the seeker, the sojourner, the pilgrim on this great path, the highway of awakening. So like a dream, like a fantasy, like a mirage is a good American mantra to remember. We're just like a dream, like a fantasy. I think there's even a Zen book, perhaps by Nyogen Senzaki, one of the early Zen masters who came to America. 80 years ago or so, called Like a Dream, Like a Fantasy. And this is from, if you want to look it up, we're studying the eight similes of illusion in the Mahayana, Transcendental Wisdom Scripture, the Prajnaparamita Sutra, and I think it's in the uh, Diamond Sutra. I believe that's right. It, 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 let me interrupt you just so briefly, my friend, because I think what you're saying here is incredibly important, and I, if with, with your permission, I want to zip it down a little bit more in the sense of I mean, like, what is the soteriology of this? For instance, why soteriology being, you know, kind of the study of, like, or pursuit of salvation and liberation? And so you're you're hinting at this. But I for our listeners... Say again? Andrew, I love when you talk nerdy. Yeah, nerdy and dirty, isn't it? I, I get off on that. You know, it gets me, gets my heart beating. So, yeah, thanks for calling me on that. But yeah. it, this is important for our listeners because... You know, the, the fundamental charter for me is like many people ask um, with lucid dreaming, let alone dream yoga, right? Um, which in my cartography, I, I say dream yoga transcends but includes lucid dreaming. It's like my life is busy. I'm, I'm you know, why should I bother? Why should I do this? And, and for me, I, I'll give you my short riff and then I really would love to hear what you have to say about this is that these teachings – you know, lucid dreaming leads to lucid living and also, parenthetically, lucid dying. Um, it connects to bardo yoga. And the, the way I fundamentally look at it now, to paraphrase it, is that these teachings are core. And they fundamentally, if I'm summarizing what you're saying, is that they allow us to take things seriously without taking them literally. Because if we take things literally and reify them, 
we suffer in direct proportion to that level of reification. But if we don't take it seriously, then we slide into the host of near enemies of these practices, escapism, spiritual bypassing, you name it. Um, so talk to us a little bit more about just that. So when people listen to this stuff, they go, why should I bother with this stuff? You know, my, my life is so busy. Why should I, you know, I don't want to remove the do not disturb sign, right, when I go to sleep. So riff on that a little bit. Well, the do not disturb sign, like everything, has its place, but shouldn't be, probably shouldn't be overused. Um, <clears throat> and nor underused. There are other near enemies also that we uh, could become aware of, like nihilism is not the same as the realization of the great shunyata, so-called emptiness or subjectivity, as I often translate it, mm -hmm. uh, or intangibility and ungraspability. Uh, near enemy there is nihilism, thinking that nothing matters. And the other extreme, materialism, thinking mistakenly that only what we can measure, what we can see, what we can weigh counts, as in extreme scientism, kind of one of the scourges, I think, of the modern era. Not science, sure. but scientism, overly scientific or analytically um, attached and even dogmatic, that if you can't see it, if you can't weigh it, it doesn't exist. Whatever, you know, we could talk about existence and non-existence and other things at another time, but I think this is an important distinction not to fall into the extremes of nihilism on one hand or materialism, overly believing in things as real as we perceive, misperceive, or uh, interpret them to be. So that's why Buddha never really taught or called what he presented as a path of salvation or liberation, Buddhism. He called it the great middle way. And when asked him, said the middle way beyond extremes, like extremes of exists or doesn't exists. There are things maybe in between uh, um, nihilism and materialism, which I see as like two ditches on either side of the multi-lane great highway of awakening. So it's, we don't have to try to find a razor's edge down the middle, but there are many lanes of, awake, of awakening, many courses for different horses, different practices and styles for different people, and so on, like jnana and bhakti, philosophy or, or um, discriminating awareness as one path and the other one as devotion, emotional path. And then the yoga path, it's more physical and ener energy prana oriented. So the middle way includes many lanes, but we try to avoid those extremes. And another extreme is where we fall, we mistake this subjectivity or relativity to talk a little bit modern, maybe, for um, nothing matters or no one can know. And I sometimes feel the postmodern deconstructionists yeah. like Foucault and others fall into this extreme where it starts to undermine every form of assertion or denial. And then there's no handrails, guardrails, signposts, and you get into the realm that I'm afraid politically we're straying into these days in America with our earless feeder, the Agent Orange at the White House, as I call him, right. Trump, where, you know, <clears throat> alternative facts, fake news, and so on is just part of it. And you can't discern what's real or what, what's not real. Evolution and creationism, that the world was created in six days, and Darwinian evolution taught equally in a state like Kansas, for example. 
Yeah. Rather than evolution being on the front burner and those other theories that have been sort of, you know, lost grip on us, mostly in the world, in the modern world, being on the back burner where it should be, but still in the cultural history and zeitgeist, no doubt, no problem, but not equal. So I think the middle way is a great teaching tool and also for self-guidance. I often use it as a touchstone myself, whether I'm becoming too, again, the extremes of like austerity and on the other side, indulgence. The middle way has a lot more freedom and flexibility rather than getting stuck with one extreme always or the other. Another extreme, just to talk modern and American and even therapeutic, is always and never. So many couples or uh, colleagues founder on the words always and never. You always, you never, making viable or intelligent dialogue and communication impossible. Yep. Always, you know, never is a very long time. It might be premature to say never. Or always. And it's often about meaningless things, too. So it's just an overreaction. So the middle way, I find a great touchstone even for myself. You know, if I'm becoming a workaholic, it might be good work, but it's still a holic. It becomes a substance abuse. If I'm a thinkaholic, you know, thinking is a good tool, but a poor master. The intellect's a good tool, a poor master, as this Hindu scriptures say. Um, so I'm the founder, therefore, and this is more like a cartoon rather than a reality, of the <clears throat> TA, Thinkaholics Anonymous, where we overvalue thinking and we have to come to realize that thoughts are like a substance that have t- thinking is taking control of us and we need to resort to a higher power, the inner power, like awareness, or etc., to help us back to health and, menta- and basic physical and mental and relational health and health is the natural state friends not illness illness imbalances the aberration so it's a coming back to our true innate wholeness which the word zogchen translates coming back to our true nature the natural state as it is which doesn't just mean trees and grass but includes everything that arises on this planet outer and inner phenomena and noumena mind stuff so I love the middle way teaching that things neither are or are not, and there also could be both or neither. Like an electron is a good example of this from modern science, which sometimes exhibits the qualities of a particle, sometimes the qualities of a wave. And it's, you can be predicted where that will be, but it's not a solid substance most of the time, particle. Nor is it only a wave. Sometimes it exhibits particle qualities. So that's called both and neither. In other words, they don't just exist forever or the soul exists forever, nor does it non-existent. Like the word no self, anatta, anatma, no separate independently existent soul, anatta, anatma, which might suggest, if you don't look more into it, it means no separate independent, permanent, existent self or soul. It doesn't mean there isn't a relative self. Correct. Healthy, individuated ego is necessary to go through life if you're not going to be independent your whole life or worse, you know, need taken care of in a mental institution and being fed and all. It's important to have a healthy, individuated adult self and develop from dependence as a child to independence, not codependence, to independence. But don't stop there with what might be the near enemy of independence and autonomy, which is teenage react overreactive independence. 
but move from dependence to independence to, listen up, please, friends, autonomy within interdependence. That's very important evolution that we haven't heard enough about. Recognize yes. the interdependence. What, but yes, autonomy within independence, which is the secret of self-mastery. That it's not what happens to us, but what we make of it that makes all the difference. And that is so important and so helpful, and I want to underline and highlight that again. Yeah, that's beautiful. That you know, uh, using different language, agency within communion, and yes. you know, I wanted to circle back. You, you nailed it. so many really lucid points here. One at the outset is, as you know, you know, when when we work with these um, kind of nocturnal practices, which again, there's so much code language, twilight language going on here, and so when we're working with um, lucidity and non-lucidity, you know, lucidity is a code word for awareness, in my opinion. Non-lucidity is a code word for non-awareness, or, or in, in this instance, blind spots. And the reason I bring this up is what you were talking about um, a, a, li a little bit earlier is the blind spot of how that we're all, whether we know it or not, we're all extremists. We're all fundamentalists. We just don't know it. I mean, we're, we have all tipped into the the arena the ditch as you put it um of uh, eternalism thinking that things fundamentally exist that's a form of fundamentalism extremism that we are not even aware of and and we live our lives in such suffering because of these extreme extremist tendencies and so pointing those things out finding cleaving the middle way between eternalism and uh and nihilism finding uh being comfortable in this kind of liminal space. You know, I'm, I'm very interested in your comments on liminality. And, and, and even, for instance, uh, you interviewed Jennifer Dumper, who, who wrote a, a sweet little book on liminal dreaming, which is uh, her phraseology for hypnagogic hemptopopic states, or what I playfully refer to as bardo states between this and that. And, and so this idea of liminality comes into play here, that we allow ourselves the flexibility to stay on these kind of threshold dimensions between always and never, between here and there, um, in these kind of bardo or, or gap arenas where we're comfortable with not knowing, as Dafri John put it, the, the beauty of divine ignorance, where we're okay hanging out, and that we don't fall prey to what you were talking about earlier, to the substance abuse of thinking, because we're all, again, another blind spot. Um, we're all junkies. We're all addicted to the primary substance of samsara, which is form, which has its most insidious manifestation is thought. So another blind spot or non-lucidity spot is we're all thought junkies. And, and the consequence of that substance abuse is just look at what's happening in the world today. And so to, to recapture this, you know, you talk about the returning to the natural state. I, I, I like to play on you know, I, I'm like you, maybe you were born in May and you're a Gemini like me with our wordsmithing. But, um, you know, Richard Love talked about nature um, uh, disorder, nature deficit disorder. I, I believe we also suffer from a nature of mind deficit disorder. Um, that We've lost touch not only with the natural world, but with the nature of our own being. And in so doing, a, a consequence of that loss, non-lucidity, is in fact this raging darkness of the dark age. Um, and so I just wanted to throw that a little bit into the mix and see if any of this pasta you know, stuck on the wall for you and if there's something you wanna elaborate or, or challenge or go off um, on that. Well, I could listen to you and I'd love to have you on my podcast called Awakening Now, which is on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. But Beautiful. 
But um, I'll also, I'm going to take you to task about your thinking because I'm not sure that it's as simple as uh, some of the things that we've been saying. So, okay, let's go for it. You know, and that's important that somehow I, th I think, I feel, I'm trying to intuit what I really want to say here, say something, you know, now and fresh and not just repeat catechisms like eternalism, nihilism, and other things we've all learned in our uh, Mahayana Buddhist studies and my right. philosophy, uh, important as it is. And I do base myself in the classics, although I'd rather play jazz with the Dharma um, according to this, each situation and each person who comes to me for it, or my own practice of the moment. But I'm certainly steeped in the classics, and I recommend it to anybody, the sutras and tantras, uh, the lineage teachings, and you mentioned some of them, Minjur Tuku Rinpoche and His Holiness the Dalai Lama and others who were alive, speak English, and are pretty accessible if you want to look at it that way. So I'm all for that. Um, I think it's not as simple as we would like it to think. And a, lot, and a lot of people have been involved in these things in practice for a long time and may or may not have the uh, results, let's say, not to be overly result or uh, measuring oriented, but the, that they expected. Of course, expectations are very tricky. As Trump Rinpoche famously said, no appointments, no disappointments. So I put in the word, no expectations, no disappointments. But it's, you have to have no expectations. But maybe less expectations, less grasping and, and fixation, less disappointment, less dukkha or dissatisfactoriness, less dukkha or suffering as people from the dukkha school, the suffering Buddhists. Uh, from from Dukavati, right? Dukavati. I'm all for positive Buddhism, like positive psychology. You know, the joy and the positive virtues and the innate natural awakefulness that we have that's taught by the non-dual awareness traditions, Mahamudra and Dzogchen already mentioned, um, <clears throat> Shaivite, uh, Tantricism and non-dualism and others. And I think those are very important traditions that we can learn a lot from and let go of our grasping. and cultivate intuition rather than just conceptual thought and cultivate imagination rather than just trying to control our minds and get calm and clear under thought control meditation. Um, thoughts, every, every momentary arising is like a poem or a bubble in the stream of Buddha mind, Buddha awareness, which is really, and I'll put a hyphen in this word, no mind. The Zen teaching of no mind. There's a book about it. You can look it up by D.T. Suzuki. It's a great teaching, which means no, not no mind or being anti-intellectual or being a doofus or overly simplistic simpleton, but it means there is more to experiencing life than just conceptual thought and interpretation, evaluation. And no mind means wonderment. Well, let me use the Dzogchen term, wonderment, just like a child who is not familiar with things that she sees and everything is wonderful she doesn't know yet she's a snake a leaf anything imaho wonderment open without previous fallacious or spurious knowledge somebody has to tell her to be aware of the snake or that she can pick up the leaf or whatever if she's putting it in her mouth that's a different question 
So I think wonderment is a great understanding as to how we can proceed through life beyond expectations of results of what enlightenment might be or uh, what kind of lifestyle enlightenment people must pursue, how they should look, eat, drink, shave, or um, talk. In fact, some people have told me whenever they hear me on just my voice on radio or reading my books on, quote, tape, audio books and so on, they are put off at first or they're surprised or they think it's like the Lama's translator. Then they realize it's just it's Jeff Miller from Long Island, New York, the three sport jock who became Lama Suridas by following this path. And that's actually what he's advocating. But if I can do it, you can do it. Anybody can do it. And I think that's very important to have this openness, open mind, open heart, open hands, open arms, open community. And we can go on what we need to you know, talk about these days, inclusiveness and other things. So I think this is very important. And um, I, I lost track of what you said that I was going to try to attack. It's interesting you say that because I wanted to bring you back to that. I, I, I'm not being patronizing when I say this. I love it when people call me on my BS. And so uh, you were going to take me to task about something not being so simple. So maybe that can jog your memory. What, what did I say that seemed too facile or dismissive or simple? I have my memories going. So I, I, go, I commit to you. I'm going to listen to this interview with the first half of it and find that, and I'm going to call you then, or email you about it. And, and then so, call me on my crap. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'd love it. Not, it's not crap. But, you know, <laughs> you know, in the name of not being overly simplistic, Andrew, I did two three-year retreats and you did one. So I see it as my job. To what's correct, and also I'm older and you're younger, so to kick you this a little further along, you know, as I think it should be. Doesn't oh, I love it, my friend. No, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not being patronizing when I say this. Yeah, I love it. But let me, let me, let me toss this in as, is a perhaps a, um, uh, a parenthetical uh, interjection. I think on one level, as you know, and, and let me just say this. That reality is essentially simple. It's confusion and delusion that's complicated. And so, as, as we both know, this is why I am, and I'm sure you are to a certain extent, I'm, I'm such a fan of integral theory, integral thinking, because while the simplicity, and, and really in this respect, the fundamental spiritual instruction, as I've come to understand it, is extraordinarily simple, you know, open and relaxed, but it's confusion that's complicated. And so, um, I don't want to come across as, as being facile in the the complexity of the confused agenda. And I think integral theory is extraordinarily elegant, has great explanatory power in terms of articulating that fundamental confusion. And so if, if that's what needs to be talked about, let's go there. But I do want to throw into the mix, and I'd love to hear if, if you think otherwise, that perhaps one of the most challenging aspects of waking up on the path, and, and again, to the readers and listeners um, of, of your many books, I, I did a little bit of um, number crunching of your 14, 16 books now. About half of them include the word awakening. Mm-hmm. Your podcast is is the Awakening Now podcast. So obviously, the awakening agenda is a large part of your life. But to me, um, Surya, fundamental processes of awakening could not be more simple. That's what makes them so difficult. Just open and relax. And the natural state is, in fact, what you will fall into. You're waking down, not up. You're falling into enlightenment. And on one level, that couldn't be any easier. It's it's delusion that's complicated. So um, how does that settle with you? 
That's fine. Yes. And like I told you, my mission in life and my rationalization, as I was saying, um, facetiously. So I'm going to just say, that's fine. Except I want to refine that a little and say, uh, like, for example, my first big bestseller was Awakening the Buddha Within. So somebody said to me, I thought the Buddha was already awake. So already, I sound like Elmer Fudd. <laughs> already awake. So, you know, that made me push me further in the 90s to think about and talk about more the Dzogchen notion of wakefulness rather than awakening as a process and going forward, which is relative and linear, the path of purification and the sutras uh, over the four stages of liberation and the path of the bodhisattva in Mahayana sutras of the 10 bhumis or stages leading to the 11th complete exalted unexcelled enlightenment or a full blossom Buddhahood. Uh, well, this is in the general rational linear path, but then there's also the swooping down from above non-dual approach. I think Ken Wilbur tried to call it for decades, already is, or already perfect or something. Always already, yeah. Always already, that's right. And I think that's important also, like, to recognize innate wakefulness and that all things are part of that already shining, already beautiful, already perfect as they are, although they still could use a little tweaking. And that's, you know, according to the law of karma, you know, cause and effect, how things are happening, what's causing the nightmares. Is this something, you know, in your psyche or it's what you ate before you went to sleep? So you get a little more upaya, skillful means, as well as prajna, wisdom. And these two wings are like the wings of the bodhisattva that can soar in space in the space of freedom and enlightenment, not just the wings of the bodhisattva that can fly to the goal over many lifetimes, but that can soar and swoop in the space of freedom right now. And that is the natural innate great perfections of Pachempo in Tibetan, Mahasamdhi in Sanskrit, Mahaati is Trungpa like to call it the peak people. Yep. And that's also Mahamudra, Tantra Mahamudra, not Sutra Mahamudra, but Tantra Mahamudra, like the view of Zochan, Mahamudra, the ultimate perspective the bigger picture, as I like to call it. Um, this is very important, Andrew, I think, to recognize the innate wakefulness or the clear light in everything, including the shadows. The yeah. shadows are nothing but light. That's very important. I remember in my time with Kalurimche, Karmapa, my Trangarimche, your teacher, my Kagyu masters, and I did Kagyu Nundro and Yidams and those things in India in the 70s. And then I was in a Dzogchen Ningma retreats in the 80s and the Kinsumche and Dujum Rinpoche and Yoshi Kempo and so on. Um, Lord Marpa, the translator, Milarepa's guru, Milarepa, Tibet's greatest poet and saint, yogi. Marpa, a lay person who walked India and was there for 17 years and brought back Mahamudra and the enlightening tradition of the practice lineage that became called Kagyu which we all love and respect so much, represented today by the great 17th Karmapa and so on, and Triangle of Jane, others still alive. They tell the story of Lord Marpa, who was a wrathful guru, not a peaceful, uh, loving, vegetarian-oriented science <laughs> guru like Dalai Lama. He was a wrathful guru. He, tried, he kicked Miller Repertoire Enlightenment so much with his nine great tasks, meaningless tasks, really, except to purify Miller Repertoire's karma and resistance, that Miller Repertoire wanted to commit suicide. 
And only Marpa's selfless wife, Damima, and that's what selfless means, Damima, uh, saved Milarepa. And somebody said to Marpa, you're still angry. I, I thought you're a spiritual master. And he said, my anger is like, car anger is like carved in a stone, but even stones are clear light. When we can see that, that is freedom and innate awakefulness. Even stone is impermanent. Even a carving can be, you know, sanded off or recarved. Or the stone will turn into sand and will drift away with the next rain or, or river. So I like to think of this positive Buddhism and as reunion with the natural state, not getting there after many lifetimes of schlepping towards enlightenment. <laughs> And that's why I love this direct portal or direct access of the non-dual awareness paths that I gave a few examples of, Mahamudra, Dzogchen. Shaiva Tantra. Shaiva Tantra, like Kashmiri Shaivism, and um, Shankaracharya's Advaita Vedanta, not just Vedanta, but the non-dual side of Vedanta, and so on, provides us direct access to all that we are and be. And you were talking about things being simple and delusion being complicated. I don't think the ignorance and delusion are that complicated, Andrew, but it complicates things. I think it's very clear when we're clear what it is, how it works, and the up and down sides of it. Sometimes we play with it. Trump Rinpoche played with it a lot. I saw him being drunk. He never lost his clarity in Mahamudra, even though his tongue started lisping. He fell out of his chair. I could not believe that. That's right. It, it broke. He was an iconoclast. He was a sitter. It broke all of my models. I can hardly say this today in this politically correct Me Too era. But I knew Philip Rinpoche and his masters. They weren't all like the, as I was saying, the peaceful, peace loving, hush puppy and glasses Dalai Lama archetype. There's the peaceful and wrathful deities representing the light and dark sides of our psyche, representing. The wrathful and peaceful sides of our relations and of life, the peaceful and wrathful gurus. And so I think delusion and these things complicate things. That's why it's in our own higher self-interest to root it out, to thin it out, to see through it. You know, these are different ways on the path, not just purifying it or rooting it out, but also learning how to use it, like maybe use it construct creatively instead of constructively. Use poisons as medicine, which isn't just theoretical. Modern medicine uses things like arsenic, uh, nitroglycerin, and things to heal us or to help our hearts fire and other things. Um, using the snake venom as serum to inoculate us against snake bites. These are all examples of Mahayana and tantric transformation so that we go through a path that includes purification and character development and compassion, and getting straight, straightforward, as well as um, progress and evolution, and transformation, and liberation, but also transmutation, transmuting yeah. the base metal, the lead of our so human animal nature, into the true gold of Buddha nature, which is our true nature. That's why Kalarimpache always used to say when teaching Mahamudra, <clears throat> we are all Buddhas by nature, not Buddhists, God forbid. Listen up, friends. We're all Buddhas by nature. 
It's only adventitious obscurations which veil that fact. We're all Buddhas by nature. It's only suddenly arising or temporary obscurations which veil that fact. This is actually a quote from the Laughing Diamond Sutra, the Hevadra Sutra. Again, the connection, Laughing Diamond, not Sharp Diamond, not an immutable adamantine diamond, as Vajrayana is often called, but also Laughing Diamond, Hevadra, Hevadra. Exactly. One of the eight great deities, you know, innate the Ista Devata, indwelling deities of the um, Tibetan tradition, hey Vajra, the laughing Vajra, the horse-headed, whose nay awakens the whole world to their true nature, the natural state, which is not that complicated. That's right. Yeah, that's it's right. like relaxing. It's hard to force yourself to relax, but when you learn how to relax, you do a little relative practices to relax, like a little exercise, a little breathing, you lay down, you get in a hammock, you know, it's hard to relax sitting at your work site, your workstation, with stuff looming over you figuratively or literally, like in my library, with its 12,000 books right. over me, you know, and manuscripts and things. So it's hard to relax there, but, you know, you go outside and just co-meditate with nature and just breathe out and dissolve into everything. I don't even want to ennoble it by calling it nature mysticism. It's just like returning to the natural state of being, being, which is what Zen means. The sixth patriarch said, when somebody asked him what's Zazen, he said, it's just sitting. And they said, do you have to sit? And he said something like, it means just being, just standing, just walking, just, that's the suchness yeah, that just. religion talks about, tatata. Not yeah. just the Gatagarbha, the Buddha, but the Buddha-ness of everything. But if you said trust, I'm going to go with that. Yes, trust. Letting go means letting be, not getting rid of, not getting rid of thoughts. Letting thoughts come and go, letting be in awareness, flow of awareness. Discerning between mere thinking and a mindfulness or awareness of thoughts. That's a very important stage for any introspective meditator or contemplative practice. And, and there's one point, there's one point I want to emphasize that, you know, you're hitting on so many incredibly important points, but there's one in particular I want to emphasize and, that, and then also have your reaction or response to. And that is, as you well know, in, in, our, in our tradition, our tradition meaning, you know, kind of the Tibetan Buddhist Kool-Aid, you know, we, we, there's, a, there's a bit of traffic on... Um, the you know the difference between yam and tokpa and yep. and yam um, is obviously well for our listeners it means experience in particular spiritual experience um, which has its place but if we don't relate to experience properly it becomes a, a real problem and this is what I want to talk to you about it won't mature into realization which is tokpa and so a couple of things here my friend one is that in the, in the provisional sense of of yam we tend to think of spiritual experiences as arising within the context of samsara, and therefore the spiritual experience is therefore deemed temporary, i.e. nyam. That's what it is, temporary experience. But I thought about this a little bit deeper in the context of what we were talking about earlier, and that really the, the fundamental nyam, we've got it backwards, because the fundamental nyam is samsara itself. That's the temporary experience. It's just been happening for so long that we think that's the ground state. And so when we punch through 
through wrathful means and an interesting interjection of the hundred and peaceful wrathful deities do the math there are more wrathful deities than peaceful ones for obvious reasons and so i think it's important to put this out to people because we have these experiences they, they seem to arise as temporary experiences within the context of samsara but that's actually ass backwards. Samsara is the temporary experience. It's just been lasting for so damn long. We don't see it that further, that way anymore. And, and so when we have these experiences, it's more like punching holes through the clouds. That we're, we're basically relaxing into the radiance that's below samsara, again, falling into the natural state. So um, I think that's a, a, an important interjection these days because otherwise – People get spiritually materialistic. Everybody wants an experience these days, and, and cults are born from that. All kinds of spiritual pathologies are born from searching for spiritual experience. When fundamentally, it's a you know we're searching for a false destination. It, it's always already right here. Um, we just have to open and relax to it. So I think that's important to throw into mix. And I'm wondering how that lands with you. Yes, yes. You know, um, we're coming from the same place, and. You know, I could listen to you all day. Uh, I, I also want to uh, throw a little auto commentary or lay down a few other tracks on, you know, your main uh, harmony here. There are more wrathful deities than peaceful deities, and you didn't read this in a book, nor did I, because there are more beings in the lower realms, and this is according to you know Buddhist or Tibetan cosmology. There are more beings in the lower realms than the higher realms. There are more unwholesome states than wholesome states in the average uh, human mind, existence, consciousness, you know, desires, greed, hatred, delusion, pride, jealousy, etc. That doesn't mean, you know, the spiritual world is not necessarily a democratic one. You can make an exponential leap. It's not about quantity, you know, like one drop of LSD can do more than for you probably or to you than 10 of beers or wines. So it's not about quantity. And, you know, with my initials, uh, it does come naturally to use those examples. Uh, Lama Surya Das. Oh, beautiful. Oh, they, that's the inner. See, it's a self-secret language, my friend. Right. I never thought of that. You're the asset head. But, see, that's beautiful because your teachings, to play out again, It's your teachings are a solvent. Your teachings are there to dissolve reified reality. So, LSD, you are the, you are the solvent. That's beautiful. The ultimate solution, my friend. <laughs> It was a gateway to the deeper or deepest dharmas for many of our 60s generation and 70s time. Uh, late Ram Das, the Kapoor, Baba Ram Das, who just had died at home in right. high age, 88, uh, was a pioneer in that and helped mentor us all towards making more than a bonfire out of all of the higher states of consciousness, but really into a um, a way of awakening and bringing beyond chemicals into uh, self-mastery, surrender, freedom, one with oneness with the totality or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so just a shout out to that. But what I wanted to say was I think that it's very important to recognize that a lot of these talk about deities or about archetypes and if we bring it back to our own spiritual life and practice, our body, mind, continuum, our heart and soul, body and mind, spirit and energy, as I like to call it, to be more inclusive, rather than just body, speech and mind in the Tibetan um, gloss, but 
heart and soul, body and mind, spirit and energy, and, and relations, community. Um, I think it's very helpful to recognize and inquire further into with openness and wonder, what does it mean when the master say it is all within? Yeah. That there's nothing outside, it's my it's only in the mind. Not exactly, that's an extreme. But it's interesting since we most of us have the illusion that things are happening to us and the outside is impo so important or get depressed and alienated by feeling like just a cog in the big giant wheel or a grain of sand in the universe. There's a flip side to that where the grain of sand contains the whole universe and we're part of a well-oiled, beautiful, sacred, mysterious, almost unknowable, mysterious machine. And the wiser we get about it, the more we sort of quote into it, understand, fit in, feel connected, and are saved by it in a way, or delivered from this suffering, confusion, and delusion. That's why this is a wisdom tradition that we're part of, right, Andrew? Not just Correct. a faith-based tradition or inherited faith, but moving from faith to conviction through some kind of seeking, through some kind of thorough, if not rigorous, developmental scheme or practice that takes us along until there's an exponential rather than just a incremental gradual development but an exponentially a breakthrough a satori a leap to another level from flatlands into three or four dimensions and so on um i think one reason it's so hard to recognize this Buddhist within or this innate wakefulness or this natural state like you said we're so used to and we could call it many lifetimes or we could just call it habituated and conditioned to going around in circles to spinning our wheels to digging a deeper rut by going around and around doing the same thing and expecting different results which people have called insanity um you know, we can recondition and deconditioning our conditioning or our karma. And that takes skillful means, as we were talking about before. But one reason it's so hard to recognize this is it's so close that we overlook it. That's right. It's so, it seems so too good to be true. Hiding in plain sight. Yeah. So, you know, we can't believe it. It's hiding in plain sight. It's transparent. It's not a thing. So we see through it and we don't know it. See, seeing through has two means, a double-edged sword. We have to awaken and see through ourselves to experience our true self with a capital S, our sacred, divine, um, supreme self. See through our small, egocentric, linear, rational, conceptual mind with a small M to recognize the Buddha mind, the capital M mind, as it says in Zen books. Mind with a capital M. Beyond mind, the Buddha heart mind, bodhicitta awakened awareness or innate wakefulness. So it's so close that we overlook it. It's so transparent, we see right through it. It seems too good to be true that the Buddha's within, that it's within every being, all beings endowed with the luminous Buddha nature. In that. And fourth, it's not outside, so we can't grasp it, we can't obtain it, we can't uh, sort of billboard it, and so on. It's not outside, so we can't grasp it. Or make it or take it in. It's already beyond outside and inside. These four key points are part of the view of Dzogchen. You can read it in books like the 10th chapter of 
The Art of Living and Dying by Sogyal Rinpoche. Uh, recently defrocked Sogyal Rinpoche. It's a great book. Chapter 10, The Innermost Essence about Dzogchen and the four points of deviation from the view. Too close, too transparent, too good to be true. And uh, the fourth one, which I already forgot. You can look it up. Yeah, and they also, you know, just to, just to echo this, as That's you well know. About yeah. God, for example. Ramdas used to say, probably quoting from the Hindu scriptures, I don't know, chapter and verse, that we all feel like we're seeking God or truth or something, but it's God that's been seeking us all along. The great poet of the Middle East, Rumi, the Sufi poet of old, Jalaluddin Rumi, said, I was knocking on heaven's door, God's door, Allah's door for so long, to only to find out I've been knocking from inside the door all, all along. Beautiful. And that's the great perfection, the innate great perfection, sometimes translates the natural great perfection, the natural state, the great Tao, which is not static, it's ecstatic, it's ever-moving, it's dynamic, the great Tao, the way, the truth, the light, which bears on our talk about like a dream, which is something we can realize in the liminal states before, while we're falling asleep and the hypnagogic imagery, um, while we're asleep and waking up being aware in our dreams, lucid dreaming, um, all six bardos, not just the bardo after death, all the six bardos, and before I was joking about the bardo between birth and death, we usually don't think about that, but that's also just a gap, a temporary transition, a passageway, not just the, tr the journey from death to rebirth. With, how about the bardo between thoughts, where it said <laughs> Mahamudra is easily recognized, the clear light dawns, not just when you die, but in between every thought, and I should add to that every arising, every perception, every feeling. That's a bardo we could exploit. It's a bottomless, groundless, grounded being bardo. So bardo, the gap, the transition, the passageway, which has built in the understandings of impermanence and contingency and not separate permanent selfhood and the unreliability or, or dukkha of it. And by the way, I don't translate dukkha as just as suffering, but as dissatisfactoriness, and for funny, as skruka. I think that's my favorite translation. Dukkha means skruka. <laughs> the first in the endless wheel cycle, vicious cycle of samsara. So I think that it's very helpful to recognize this. Uh, it's all a gap. It's all a bardo. Like, it's everything's a bardo, yeah. You know, this uh, night school, nightclub, this um, dialogue we're having is sort of the gap in between what we were doing before or talking about to whoever and what we're going to do in half an hour, an hour afterwards. So how do we recognize the clear light in this gap? Not just wait until we can meditate. That's right. Clear light yoga or dream yoga or dream body, illusory body yoga, we meditate or dream yoga, clear light at night or when we do our next retreat or not just when we're in holy place on certain day, Saturday, Sunday, whenever your Sabbath is, Monday night at the Dharma Center, or at seven in the morning at the one in nature, or at sunset, all great turning points where we can recognize the gap when the clear light dawns, to use the Tibetan phraseology. Like when we die, there's a great release that it's the moment you can recognize the clear light. It's not that the sun is coming up, it's that the earth turns. The clear light doesn't really uh, come and go. 
it's our body falls away and there's a turning and there's only clear light until the next you know body english produces the next effect whatever bowling pins it hits and metaphors but i feel like the rebirth is like the cycle of conditioning it's like bowling and you put english on the ball and then you also tilt your body instinctively to help it get to hit the pins or when you shoot a basket in basketball which i love to play you're always putting body english on it after the shot it's called follow through it actually helps the shot right or intended so that's part of Upaya, skillful means. Self-mastery helps us plant I think the it's seeds or create the causes for the things that we desire, that we aspire to, that we really need and want. Not I think that love in all the wrong places. That's yeah, this is another one of these really important points I, I, I want to toss in is an exclamation point, uh, Surya, because, again, this cannot be overemphasized in my opinion. The the utter is kind of a this narrative of our conversation, which is beautiful and all the different facets that we're kind of pinging onto this diamond that you're presenting to us, is that the the, the utter immediacy of of the clear light mind that yes it, it it we can use these type of practices to make us more accident prone so to speak as uh, Baker Roshi put it you know enlightenment is an accident these practices make us accident prone but I want to say, harp a little bit in particular about this notion of Bardo principle and how it relates to the space between thoughts like you were talking about you know we don't have to die to experience the bardo of dharmata. It exists, um, actually, it's never not present, but um, between each and every thought. And it's, it's like, you know, that space is, is the passport into, our, into the bardos. So if you want to uh, travel the after-death journey to, um, with some elegance, if you believe in this sort of thing, that phenomenological process takes place with the arising, abiding, and cessation of every thought, every moment. And so when we sit in meditation and we, <clears throat> you know, we, we lessen the display to recapture the essence by slowing things down, we start to notice the gaps, the bardos between thoughts. That's the dharmata. That's your passport into the bardos. And, and it, it ties in very beautifully to my favorite working definition, Lamala, of meditation these days, which is, in fact, habituation to openness, habituation to space awareness. And, and this is always already present. It is, is it never absent. It's just really uh, uh, the act of recognition. And that's why these non-dual paths, I think like you, the older I get, the more interested I am in these kind of irreducible instructions and paths, the non-dual traditions where you know, the, the path is fundamentally one of recognition and relaxation and openness, and nothing could be simpler, which, of course, is what makes it so hard because, you know, we're not human beings, we're human doings, and we want to do something about this, and we want to do something about that, when all we fundamentally have to do is open our heart-mind and realize it's, again, always already present. So I just wanted to put an exclamation point on that because it, it cannot be overstated. Everybody, you know, like Trungpa Rinpoche said, you know, at the highest stages, striving is the only obstacle. Um, it's, it's just the open heart mind, and, and it's always already present. And, and the Mahamudra kind of interjection that you well know to add to the four steps of the Dzogchen that you were presenting is, you know, it's so obvious we don't see it. It's so simple we don't believe it. It's so, so easy we don't trust it. And yeah. so, um, you know, when people point these things out, the great masters give us these pointing out or really pointing in instructions 
Yeah. Um, very often people come out and, or they have some experience of it and, and they'll say something like, yeah, it was great, but, and then, you know, if they say, but then we have this thing called the spiritual path, um, you know, to, to travel the, the road that really never needs to even be traveled. So I, I just want to reinstate that because I think that's the underlying narrative of what we've been talking about and the importance of this cannot be overstated. Um, and so that's just something I wanted to throw into the mix. Yes. Thank you. And um, bully for that. Uh, I do feel it's important to keep alive the swooping down from above sudden enlightenment. <clears throat> um, what does Matthew call, Fox call it? Sacred earth or <clears throat> sacred worldview that this is the world. This world is like an altar, and we're all the being deities or gods and gods on it. Not it's far away, or we have to get to the other shore across the boiling ocean of samsara, as it says in the original primitive Buddhism. Because one, it's true; two, it's invaluable; three, most of exoteric religion, philosophy, and the humanities takes up the more relativistic, uh, karmic view, like what goes around comes around, and you know. What you plant, what you sow will be, be what you reap and so on. All this is very true. But Mahayana Buddhism, I thought, came forward with a great refinement on the original Theravadan Buddhism, the tradition, the elders, the ancient ways, by talking about the union of absolute truth or the ultimate, like swooping down from above or that everything is naturally shunyata or open, luminous, radiant. And... The relative view of life is full of difficult, the unenlightened life is full of difficulties, challenges, and suffering, which is the first noble truth, but there's also the third one, that there is another way, the enlightened life, the path to enlightenment. So it's not that life is suffering, the unenlightened life is full of suffering. And Mahayana Buddhism and philosophy brought together beautifully the union of the ultimate and relative. And in the Dzogchen and Mahamudra tradition, we talk about swooping down from above while climbing up from below through relative yeah. practices according to our capacity. And that's a good, again, refinement or later evolution of this way of understanding the union of absolute or that this is the garden, don't look anywhere else, and the relative, that this it still needs a little tweaking, pruning, and weeding to keep it as the garden. And I think this is very important. Therefore, I've heard it come out of my mouth many times, so I guess I said it. <laughs> let it being there while getting there—that's the secret. That's beautiful. Being yeah. there while getting there, every step of the way, not waiting many lifetimes, or schlepping towards enlightenment. Being here, being there while getting there, every single step of the way, and recognizing that this yellow brick road, this rainbow path, doesn't have a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. As we know, that's like Santa Claus. It's a beautiful archetype, metaphor, story for um, when we're young, spiritually. But a rainbow seen from above, God's eye view, is a circle. Check it out. Yeah, it's nice. The path is like ground, path, and result are a circle, not a linear line. And that's one difference, again, probably being very general between Western philosophy and Eastern philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. And so let me give a shout out to the Western, quote, philosophers and mystics 
who of course went beyond that, like Meister Eckhart, Plotinus, Negativa, and his teaching that the eye through which I see God is the eye through which he sees me, is definitely that all-encompassing view, not dualistic, not only linear, and there are so many other Western mystics we could think of, as well as Eastern mystics who are definitely into the gradual path and more skillful means than wisdom. And sometimes I feel, I don't really want to be critical of my friends, my colleagues, our traditions, there's too much upai. You know, in general, we have to get it uh, into practice and get straight, you know, deal with our addictions and hang-ups and, you know, whatever. But to go more into it, once you're into it, you find that, like, some people are mainly only attached to and involved in the skillful means and there's less wisdom. And we need both, Prajnapaya, as has been said before, as has always said. I've even heard a great Lama I trust a lot criticize an, uh, uh, some other Lama for his millions of recitations, mantras, and uh, little statue making and say, there's a lot of skillful means there. It would be good to concentrate on the uh, Prajna element for a while, the view. So we balance that by swooping wall climbing, swooping down above from above with the big view, Mahamudra, the ultimate perspective, the view from above, the whole picture, the big picture, while climbing up from below with, through relative practices, gradually, patiently, all the paramita virtues according to our own inclinations and, and aspirations. And this swooping wall climbing is what I've encapsulated as being there while getting there every step of the way. Um, I did retreats. I did nundros. I'm still doing things like that every day. I teach those things. I love those things. I stay those things. I translate those things. Mojang, attitude transformation, mind training, do teach, translate, think about, uh, and, and other things, just, you know, being a better person, being more generous and humble, less selfish. That's the essence, man. Yeah. Already always is. Yeah. That's another like extreme. That's like an ideal. That's just an ideal. That's pie in the sky if you can't live it. That's right. We're a little bent out of shape. So, you know, coming back, we're very resilient. We're heavily conditioned. We have a lot of karma. Whether you believe in rebirth or not, we have a lot of conditioning. We have a lot of hangups, nature and nurture, and so on. Individual karma, collective karma, species karma, global karma. But we can recondition that karma and ultimately decondition it and find freedom in the moment. Like the inner child, like the baby Buddha, the baby Krishna. Every tradition has this notion of innate original innocence, the original purity, original innocence. The Garden of Eden, you know, the, the, the what do Christians call it? In general, the original sin. Yeah. I don't think it's that original. The original natural state is the garden. That's right. It's like then came the descent into no duality, knowledge, thinking, and so on. Man and woman, self and other, yes and no, ours and theirs, and all that. But the garden is our original goodness, our innate wakefulness, our Tathagata Garbha, Buddha nature. The and nature. That's so glorious when we get a glimpse of that that um, it makes us a slave, a servant of the light for life. And, and let me ask you this. You, you, you are uniquely situated with your, your extraordinary experience and longevity to, to give us uh, the, 
the overarching bird's eye view, I guess we could say state of the union address of of the status of Buddhism in, in the Western world and in particular Tibetan Buddhism. When you look back upon um, your own path, what you're seeing, what do you see Lama La as, as the promise and peril? What, what, what really gets you excited when you look forward about the transplantation of this wisdom tradition in the West? And what is it also that causes concern? And I, I want to do this because, again, it's kind of this what, what scientists talk about is translational research. You know, it's, it's very easy. And the, and the Dalai Lama, by the way, is calling the scientists in the mind and life arena on this kind of thing. It's very easy to kind of sit in our respective spiritual, intellectual ivory towers and, um, and re not really positively affect the world. And so translational research, as you know, is, is what you do with your implementation of charitable uh, work in developing countries. Um, it's taking, it's, you know, walking the talk. And so in the spirit of translational research, so to speak, using that archetype or metaphor, what do you see as promise and peril, the state of the union of Buddhism in the West, and that what we, for those of us who are listening, who are um, students of this particular tradition, things that we should be wary of and things that we can do to better transplant or implement this extraordinary wisdom tradition as it finds its way, uh, you know, with a lot of growing pain into the Western environment? Oh, that's such a big question. It's so interesting, Andrew. Um, I think my immediate answer is... <laughs> saved by the bell from having to answer. <laughs> or... As it says in the Vimalakirti Nidrisa Sutra, what I call the V Sutra, when all the bodhisattvas and great mahasattvas gave their definitions of wisdom, going up to all the nine yanas in different vigor and you know widening circles and deepening, that they asked the great layman Vimalakirti, the V man, what is it? And his silence resounded like thunder. Mm -hmm. And all of the bodhisattvas bowed and said, thus it is, thus it is, thus it is, including Manjushri, the wisdom archetype. Um, I think I've written about this. We've all talked about this for decades, for years. It's, it, there's many ways to talk about it, preservation and adaptation, um, whether we're practicing congregational, you know, group, church-like gatherings or yogic, meditative, contemplative, introspective gather, you know, retreats or learnings, or even more mystic, experiential, like risky, uh, explorations of outer space, where, you know, there's like rocket fuel involved, it's volatile, it's a little more risky and dangerous. Uh, swooping down from above while climbing up from below sounds good in general, it's important. But it ain't pretty if we swoop down too much and we have a crash landing. We have to do both. We have to be prepared. We have to be strong. We have to be, I think, open and, and um, curious or inquisitive or like really seeking. We have to check our motivation. I don't hear enough talk about motivation, yeah. intention, um, aspiration in what Buddhism in America has become is mindfulness. Yep. It's Hinduism in America has become yoga. 
Yeah. I know these are gross generalizations and there's yeah. prophets and there's monasteries and there's sannyasis and there's honest, you know, ashrams. And I teach it many of them. I visit them. My friends founded them. We all go there. Um, but <clears throat> the anchor people on television write books as bestsellers about 10% happier and, you know, mindfulness. Not Vipassana, which it kind of came from, and the pioneers, yep. Bruce Goldstein, Cornfield, Salzburg. But, you know, now <clears throat> people think, and I've heard this even in Asia, that mindfulness comes from Google, and Search Inside Yourself program, Palo Alto. Um, engineers in Singapore go to Google to learn about mindfulness. They don't know mindfulness is Buddhism, and it's right in their own countries. So there's a great flattening out with the great democratization and inclusiveness, which we have in this, you know, very uh, diverse and multi-dimensional world, shrinking world. Melting pot karma brings melting pot dharma, so science and spirit and psychology, and I hope philosophy and understanding and discernment and uh, dialogue, you know, all coming together and with the sciences and with healing and hopefully with ethical business practices and more nonviolence. I don't hear enough about that in yeah. mindfulness for more efficiency, in mindful TV, as Oprah said about her show, in mindful, you know, divorce short blog on line. Of course, it's good to be mindful. But we have to awaken. Mindful of our own minds is the essence. And I'm not talking about narcissism yeah self-awareness is not like a gangly pimply overly self-conscious teenager self-awareness is not just that kind of self-consciousness it's the real work as the pioneer middle eastern master gurjeef taught it's the work it's the true work our, our living american female teacher gangaji teaches this the mm -hmm. American female master Byron Katie teaches it. Exactly. Calls it the work, yes. So that's what work on ourselves, as Ram Das and people used to call it. Work that if we feel called to, we have to do. We have to do ourselves. Of course, we can get help. We may need uh, recipes, but we still have to eat the food if we're getting the nourishment, which is the point of cooking and food. We can't just eat painted cakes, as they say. Pictures of lamps don't illuminate. They just, you know, picture. So getting more real into transformative dharma of whatever kind, transmuting the base lead of our animalistic human nature into the pure gold of innate awakefulness of Buddha heart, mind, and Buddha nature. And beyond Buddhism, of course, of true nature. It's hard to speak of these things. It's hard to F the ineffable, but we tried. That's why his silence resounded like thunder, and everybody bowed to the ultimate wisdom. It's ungraspable and inexpressible, but definite. It's beautiful, beautiful, my friend. And and, and as we start to um, kind of wind this down, because I want to be respectful of, of, of the demands on your own time, one of the kind of questions that I'm starting to reiterate <clears throat> that I used to ask um, some 20 years ago, and the answers every time I asked this question, I remember every single answer I got from some of the great minds I had the opportunity to be around at that, at that point. And so 
um, if I don't mind, if you don't mind me putting you on the spot for just a moment, go ahead with this, with this kind of th um, um, contemplation, uh, thought experiment, so to speak, mm -hmm. which is you know you, you've lived a, an incredibly rich life with with vast stores of um, knowledge and, and experience and practice and wisdom. If you were, here's the question, um, thought experiment. If you were to suddenly realize you just had a, a minute left to live, what would be the irreducible expression of your teaching? Um, it would have nothing to do with teaching. And I thought of this just in terms of, you know, and I travel quite a bit. If the plane's going down, would I be one of the people, you know, kneeling in the in the aisle praying to God or saying Ave Maria or calling mommy, you know, if the bus is going off the Himalayan road on one of those windy roads, what would I be saying? Would I be saying Karmapacheno or Om Tada, praying to Tara with my last breath? And it always comes back to the same, and I hate to be so simplistic or even put this out in public. This is not the time of gurus, but I've concluded that I'm not the one that would be saying, oh, mommy, but I would, in the sense of I'd be say, saying something like Karmapachana, we're thinking of my guru or Padmasambhava or something, which would be like a wordless prayer or call or connection. In other words, I would be transferring myself into their heart without uh, any steps. I'd be doing Dzogchen Pawa. Exactly, exactly. My mind with a small m into the Buddha mind. Exactly. With no steps of just kind of like surrender and lay back into that, into the clear light. So that would be my action or effort rather yeah. than say, you know, try to recognize a clear light. That sounds like practice. So I would not be teaching. I think the essence, and I learned this from a wonderful Zen teacher named Louis Richmond. And you can read his books. He's a genius. He was a disciple of Suzuki Roshi. He's still alive. He's a genius pianist. <clears throat> software entrepreneur well, Lewis Richmond uh, spirituality in the workplace or work as a spiritual practice this is my famous book he was in the deepest coma from brain encephalitis and his wife and the doctors had given up on him and he had like a, they gave him like 5% chance to live and he told us later he heard them talking about it he had no will. He had. He couldn't think. He couldn't do anything. It must have been his his Zen or practice. All he could do was lie and rest back into whatever was happening, whatever was going to happen. Whether you want to call that being the clear light, the natural state, non-attachment, letting go. He had. I would call it the ultimate refuge, and he took refuge in it. And that's a, a model to me. I've never forgotten him telling me people that personally, his close friends. You know, he doesn't talk about much teaching. Just surrender, let go, which means letting come and go, letting be. And, you know, gong, silence, what will be, will be. Yeah. Merrily, 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 merrily. Yeah. Life is like a dream. Yeah, beautiful. Great way. And, it's a, it's a, and let's make it a good dream, not a nightmare. 
Exactly. Let's make it a good dream. More, more these days. Let's get out there and vote. Let's get people out to vote. I'm not going to get into you know my partisan politics, but life is like a dream. Let's make it a beautiful dream, not a nightmare. I, I, I heard La Malade. For those that, who follow. I heard the story that when Dujum Rinpoche was, was putting his, his children to sleep, he would um, allegedly tell them um, something to the effect of, what a wonderful dream we shared together today. Oh. Uh, it, it's, what, what a sweet thing. And it, it's a great way to, to finish our, our lovely time together, to end on this, this notion of, of really um, one of my, you know, a four-letter word that I don't think is 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 mentioned enough in our our tradition, which is the L word, love. That we mm -hmm. right. we we're afraid to to have this kind of fearless lion's roar proclamation of of the open heart, and and that it's not you know it's so easy to to tie this back into what you were saying earlier is one of the the perils of Buddhism in the West yeah. to think of Buddhism as a cerebral kind of cognitive exercise, you know, mental gymnastics and the mind science. Yeah, exactly. The shadow side of that. And, and we forget then that, the you know, yeah, the chitta, you know, the same word for mind is heart. And so mindfulness is just as much heartfulness. And, and we forget that affective or emotional component. And, and so it's a beautiful way to come from the wisdom that you've shared with us over this last hour or so to its its real it's it, this is real translation is it not my friend where where this wisdom is then is genuinely expressed as love and and compassion and in fact if it isn't it's not genuine wisdom and and so for you to end with kamapacheno which translates as you, you know um kamapa think of me or love me or whatever speaks to you with with this open hearted quality is is just a beautiful way for us to come full circle and so dear one it's been such a delight to spend time with you and, and i have to say um you're, you're one of these rare beings that the mere presence conveys the the level of tokpa uh, of, of realization and, and and i play here Thank with you. your levity and your humor you know is i'm a wordsmith so let me be nerdy for just a second you know the etymology of the word humor comes from a, a word liquid and and i love this the kind of liquidity that is a natural consequence of wisdom, seeing the empty nature of reality, seeing and de-reifying. Um, the consequence of that is you see the whole thing as a big joke. If you don't catch that joke, it has a very bad punchline, which is this thing we call death. And so you convey in your presence and your humor and your modesty and self-effacement a, a realization that is utterly contagious. And it, it's it's somewhat indicative of you know, or sort of say characteristic of what I feel around people like Karmapa and others who, you know, or Dalai Lama, whose whose Tibetan name Kundun means presence. That you, you that you transmit your quality through your lightheartedness and your good nature and your and your childlike joy. And and so for you to take time out of your extremely busy schedule to play in the sandbox of reality with us for this last hour and so. It has meant so much to me, and I'm a big fan of your work. Um, I hope our paths cross many times in this life and in, in future ones. And what you have done in this Western world is no small thing, my friend. It's been an enormous contribution, and I, I wish you the best in all your future projects. And as we start to really close this out, let us know how we can learn more about you, how we can support you, 
Um, part of our charter with our little nightclub is cross-pollinating with sources like yourself. So as we close this out, how can people learn more about you, um, your incredible retreats? I was introduced to you, of course, through our mutual friend, Roger Walsh, um, who just raves about his retreat time with you. So I want to provide this opportunity for our listeners to gain access to your your um, teaching in a larger format, so share with us a little bit about how they can get in, how we can get in contact with you. Well, my uh, platform is the Zogchen Center. We have a website. We have social media. Lama Suridas. I also have my personal uh, books. You know, authorship. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, a bunch of products from Sounds True that you can stream or buy CDs or DVDs about, uh, forms. I have children's book out now. I have a book of Tibetan teaching tales called The Snow Lions, Turquoise, Maine, 150 teaching tale, wisdom tales from Tibet. If you're a reader and a book lover and like short parables and, and, and entertaining and edifying teaching tales from the Himalayas, um, I have, we have uh, three, four, five retreats a year, East Coast, West Coast, and in between. You can look at my teaching schedule on the Surya.org or Zogchen.org websites. You can email me at Surya, S-U-R-Y-A, at Surya.org. I don't respond to Facebook because there's too much. Um, if you Google my name, you'll find all of these things and the handles and monikers that I can't remember because I don't spend a lot of time on social media myself and because I'm a Luddite and have gray hair. The gray hair seems to get in the way of these fast media, high-tech uh, communication and education devices. But I think of it as higher wisdom education, not just vocational training like our higher education colleges have turned into. But higher wisdom education, I think that's how we should we could help each other, Andrew, and all of the Roger Walsh and Wilbur, all of our friends, colleagues, mates and lovers and you know, all who are listening. Um, I remember that Buddha's attendant and cousin, best friend Ananda, the blissful one, once asked the Buddha, I've heard, Master, that half of the holy life is spiritual friendship, and the Buddha said, no, Nanda, the whole of the holy life is spiritual friendship. It's beautiful. Yeah. And we leave with that thought. And Andrew, we should be friends and we should be in touch. And uh, Absolutely. It's, it's been an utter delight. Thank you again for, for sharing. Yeah, happy happy Hanukkah, happy New Year, happy New Decade. Yeah. And, let, and let's make uh, 2020 the year and uh, in the decade of lucidity of forward vision. Right. 2020, perfect vision. Love it. Without being perfectionistic, Imaho. Exactly. Thank you. All the best, my friend. We'll definitely stay in touch. Thank you again, and good. And uh, bye bye now. Bye bye. Bye bye.